0: Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. For this episode, I'm going to flip things a bit and play you the Succeed Under Stress podcast, where I was interviewed by my friend and podcast host, Dr. Jonathan Horowitz. On this episode, we're talking about stress and sex with a focus on how COVID affects our sex lives. The Succeed Under Stress podcast features interviews with experts who share wisdom about stress, anxiety, and all things related. Past experts have talked about mindfulness, emotional intelligence, addiction, relationships, and more. I encourage you to check it out if you want to learn more about different approaches to handling stress. And now I'll turn it over to Succeed Under Stress. Welcome to the Succeed Under Stress Podcast, where we feature top business leaders who are finding innovative ways to help people and companies succeed under stress. Now, let's get to it.
1: Hi, folks. Dr. Jonathan Horowitz here. This is the Succeed Under Stress Podcast. Uh, I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm the founder and CEO of San Francisco Stress and Anxiety Center. And I created this show because, in my experience helping people develop develop resistance to stress, I got really curious uh, about what were different perspectives uh, on stress and what were different approaches uh, for for helping people to manage it in their day to day lives. And typically, uh, we've been focusing on the workplace here how shows up, how stress shows up in the workplace. Um, but lately we've been doing something different and starting to look more at how stress is showing up in people's uh, personal lives. And a big part of our personal lives is our relationships with our romantic partners. And today I'm really excited to have someone on the show, um, who, uh, first of all excited because I've known our guests for a really long time and have always been, we've had great, fascinating conversations and I'm excited to, to have one of those today. Um, but we're going to talk about something a little bit different, which is sexuality and stress, and specifically sex and stress in the time of COVID, because this is a huge concern. It's affecting couples. It's affecting single people. You know, people who are dating. Uh, it's it's a really big deal. So I'm here with Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, who is a psychologist who studies sex and stress, and we're going to talk about uh, stress and relationships, COVID, all things like that. So I will give her a proper introduction in a minute, but first I'm going to do the sponsorship message. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by SF stress and anxiety center. A healthy organization is made up of healthy individuals and that's not just physical health. It's also mental health and mental health issues are really common. So if you have a company or an organization of any real size, chances are somebody in it is struggling with mental health issues. And you have to wonder, are they getting access to the mental health care that they need? And you might say, well, yeah, of course, You know, we offer insurance or we have an EAP, but those things don't necessarily guarantee access to care. Uh, long waiting lists, hard to reach providers, high deductibles, all those things can stand in the way. So at SF Stress, we recognize the need for quick, easy access to high quality care, and we address that need providing mental health benefit with concierge level service. Uh, you, provide, you provide your employees with one phone number, or one URL, and when they reach out, they connect to a caring, knowledgeable client care coordinator who will match them with a provider who's a great fit. SF Stress has been around since 2012. We provide a range of services, including individual therapy, couples counseling, health and wellness coaching, career coaching, stress management, and other mental health seminars, workshops. Uh, we do it all online and we serve small and medium businesses throughout California. Uh, and our coaching practices, we do that throughout the country. So if you're interested in learning more about how we can support your company, check us out at www.sfstress.com. Uh, okay, so here today with me virtually from across the country, uh, from, well, across two countries, I guess, uh, <laughs> Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton is an associate professor of psychology at Mount Allison University in Sackville, Canada, where she teaches about sexuality, gender, and neuroscience. Lisa Dawn's research focuses on three areas. The relationship between stress and sex, monogamy and non-monogamy, and sex education. She also hosts a bi-weekly podcast called Do We Know Things, where she uses her research skills to examine the truth and myth behind the things we think we know about sex. And it's a really terrific podcast um so so much well we'll we'll talk about it here. Thank you so much for coming on, Lisa Donna. I'm excited to have you
0: I'm excited to be here
1: yeah, yeah, well cool um so there's so much to to talk about you know before this was I was like sharing the notes that I was making. I'm like, ah, there's like so many different directions um we'll see what what all we can get in here today um So we're here, you know, I wanted to do this as part of a series on sex and stress and COVID. So we can like start out on that topic and see what we can get into there because there's so much and it's so timely. Mm -hmm. And people, I know our clients are talking about this a lot. They're bringing this into therapy sessions. It's something that when I talk to people just personally, you know, they're asking me like, well, how's it going for you over there? And like, what are things like where you live? And here's what it's like here. So so I think we can talk about a lot. Um, but first, let's talk a little bit about you. Um, just how, how did you get into, so you study sex and you study stress, and it's a fascinating niche, right? And how how did you get into that?
0: It all began when I was a sex educator as an undergrad in Vancouver. I worked for an organization called Options for Sexual Health, and I knew I wanted to do something sex-related in the future and decided to apply for graduate school in psychology. And I basically looked at all sorts of programs related to sex and ended up at UT Austin, which is where I worked with Sidney Meston, who's a major expert in the field of clinical sexuality research. But I really wanted to do neuroscience research. And so I had to find a secondary supervisor. And so I worked with someone whose expertise was in the area of stress. And so before coming to grad school, I hadn't thought of putting sex and stress together. But then when I had these two advisors, one who studied stress and one who studied sex, I was like, oh yeah, I could put these two things together. And that yeah, really yeah. started my journey. And I was just completely obsessed with it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that, that you didn't really think of putting sex and stress together. I, even though I specialize in anxiety um, and, and stress, like it's not a big part of, it's certainly not a big part of what I studied when I was in grad school, you know, my lab, our research area, mm-hmm. we didn't do anything around it. And then as a clinician, I tend to, to think of those things pretty separately, so much so that when I was thinking about guests, it's weird, but it didn't occur to me to have you come on the show because in my head I was like, oh, well, you do like sex research and like <laughs> that's over there, whereas stress and anxiety stuff is over here. What right. could the overlap possibly be? <laughs> between those two things, then we started talking about it. And I was like, Oh, duh. You know? <laughs> so, and you, the work you do is, uh, completely researched. So you don't work with people clinically, right. but the, the research you do very often, uh, overlaps with clinical disorders There's a very com- clinical component to the work you've done.
0: Yeah, well, I study people who actually don't have disorders. So people who have not experienced problems with their sexuality, and I do it in different ways. So I either bring them into the lab, we stress them out, and then show them erotic videos and measure their arousal, or I do survey-based studies. And so one of the reasons I study people without problems is to show how stress can potentially cause those problems uh, when it comes up or not. I also study the fact that acute stress often is good for sex because it gets your blood pumping and, you know, things tingling. And then after the acute stressor, that can actually be be beneficial for sex. Uh, But then with chronic stress, of course, it's this oppressive thing that's hovering over you, ruining your sex life.
1: So in a lot of ways, it sounds like the impact that stress has on sex, it's kind of, it's similar to its impact on, on other activities. Right. You know, um, in acute stress or like, if you're looking at something like performance on cognitive tasks or productivity or work, which is usually where my head is at, um, in in the work I'm doing is, is like a little bit of stress over the short-term gets you focused. It's a good thing, but when it's chronic, that's Mm -hmm. when it starts to cause problems.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So if it's a moderate level of stress, that sort of optimal arousal window, then that's good for you for sex and for cognition. And then if it gets too much, like if the acute stressor is too high, you can't focus on anything but the stressor, like it will affect your ability to focus on erotic cues, for example. But then if, it, but if the, and if the stressor, even if it's moderate, extends for days and days and days and months, then it's going to have a negative effect on many aspects of your life.
1: So something like a pandemic mm-hmm. as a stressor, how you know how, well first of all how do you measure the size of a stressor and how do you measure the chronicity you know where does something like covid fall on uh you know how big of a stressor and how chronic of a stressor
0: it is challenging to measure something so sort of <laughs> wide ranging because it's going to affect different people in different ways but a lot of stress researchers often talk about how our stress response evolved in our ancestral past. And it's essentially to survive a tiger attack. So if a, a tiger jumps out of the forest and starts chasing you, you need to be able to fight or flight. And how I've been describing at the COVID stressor is that the tiger is just stalking you permanently. Like you can never escape it. It just seems to be always looming over you. And it's really impossible to, to measure that specifically. And, and researchers have been trying to get at how stressed people feel or how it's affecting them in, in many ways. But of course, you're gonna see variability in the population. Mm-hmm.
1: So it's at this point, it's really, it's really vague. It's hard to understand mm-hmm. what the impact of COVID is gonna be, um, what it is. Is there any way, so thinking about this like a researcher, is there any way to do that will there be any way to do that retrospectively i mean do you know are there research groups that are that are working on this right now um
0: i i imagine there are some studies happening now so for example in terms of if we're talking about sexuality i know there's a number of studies that are underway or have completed that will be coming out with potentially longitudinal data Uh, I, i think the main thing we ask people is how stressed are you like sort of just out front, like, how stressed are you since the pandemic? Has your stress increased or decreased since the pandemic? But because we didn't know it was coming necessarily, we don't really have that baseline data that you would normally have in research to compare to. Um, potentially, we can have data now and then compare it later to once the pandemic is resolved and once we can attempt to go back to feeling safe again, perhaps that will be, uh, like, let us know how severe it actually was during the pandemic.
1: Right. It's so unusual. I mean, I'm, now I'm thinking it's occurring to me, you have all these researchers, not just in sexuality, but just so much behavioral science research where they say, well, the time span of the study is going to be 18 months or two years or 36 months, whatever it's going to be. And then you have this pandemic occurring in the middle of the study. I wonder what that's doing to everyone's data sets and how is the field going to, going to deal with that?
0: Yeah. One of my honor students that I work with, we had designed a study that was supposed to start in May and we designed it back in January and February when she wrote a grant proposal and then may hit. And the study involved having people come into the lab provide saliva samples. Like there's no way we're going to be able to do that. Mm. Even asking people about their stress during a pandemic and the study is about stress and sexual desire. And so we have shifted it to be online. But we have to have have questions in there asking, like, how do you think your stress is differing now compared to normal? And it's hard to know if it's even going to be valid if everyone is under this extra layer of stress that you can't quite figure out what's their regular stress versus pandemic stress. And I think it's going to be tricky with my research and other people's research as well. To, it's just hard to do research at this time when everybody has this threat of COVID looming over them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean so researchers are affected in the same way so many other people are right mm-hmm. now. It's it's we know that it's impacting the the overall enterprise in some way, but you can't even say really what that's going to look like. It's probably mm-hmm. going to take years to reckon with it and and really understand it. And books will be written and more like <laughs> theses and dissertations will be written on the effect of COVID of this and that. Yeah. Definitely. And Well, given what you know about stress and its impact on sex, we can surmise that COVID, you know, it is a chronic stressor to one degree or another, Mm -hmm. probably going to vary a lot from person to person, depending on their circumstances. Are they now watching kids at home all day? And, you know, what kind of resources do they have available? We know it's probably not going to be good for their, for their sex life, generally Mm -hmm. speaking. Um, why do we know past that, like, I'm, I'm curious, because I know sort of, okay, so as a clinician and as someone who works with clinicians all day long, and, you know, I'm hearing about what clients are bringing up, um, you know, I'm hearing a lot about couples and difficulties that they're having, um, even in times, even during normal times, you know, couples who spend too much time together and don't get enough time <laughs> apart that can be difficult. That can negatively impact sexual desire that can affect chemistry. You know, you just get too much of each other. Right. And going through any sort of stressors, a couple can be really difficult. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, what, what else, like what else is happening for, for couples right now?
0: Well, there's been one study that I know of in the U S that's come out so far that actually speaks to this a little bit. Uh, And it was based out of the Kinsey Institute. And they found that On average, couples are reporting less sexual activity overall and and singles are also reporting less solo sexual activity. So sexual activity with a partner, but also masturbation across the board seems to be down for people as well, which could be a sign that stress is interfering just even with our ability to desire sex. But one thing they did notice or they found in their study was both for solo behavior and for partnered behavior. One in five people in their study of Americans found that they were had added something or at least one thing to their sex repertoire. So even with this looming threat of stress, even with um being stuck together all the time, maybe that drives the need for novelty and innovation, right? So, as Esther yeah. Pearl always says, uh, novelty is important. And so if you're bored and you're staring at each other all day long, <laughs> uh, bringing some novelty into your sexual life can be beneficial. So things that were reported in the Kinsey study were new sexual positions or sharing new fantasies with a partner, uh, or some people reported that they had never sexted before. So if they were single and they've started sexting with people or sending nude pictures to people. And so it's, it's also a time for innovation, perhaps.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. I mean, if you you think about the innovation around how we're meeting at work in the ubiquity of zoom and how, you know, a year ago, we couldn't get therapy clients to do online therapy. I mean, some would, but it was like not many and even therapists didn't want to do it. And now it's just the norm. Um, makes sense sexuality would go online in the same way because it's what you need to do and then people i imagine there's like initial resistance to it with some people but then it just becomes part of what you do
0: mm-hmm. um yeah i was also, yeah. also going to add in terms of couples i think it's important to, to carve out time for sex and carve out time to specifically focus on sex or sexuality because if our brains are always elsewhere so focusing on work focusing on kids worrying about COVID and not, and this is relevant anytime, but I think particularly now when we're jammed together a lot, uh, explicitly making time for sex or sexual connection or just att- attending to sexual cues or erotic things, uh, whether it's by yourself or with your partner, I think can remind you that you actually like sex and want to engage in it. Mm-hmm.
1: Before COVID, we would talk about that a couple's, therapists and sex therapists would talk about doing this, like have a date night, you Mm -hmm. know, get out or go, you know, role play in a hotel bar, you know, Mm -hmm. see your partner and come up, you know, a lot of times therapists would talk about setting these things up to like specifically get people out of their normal day-to-day mindset and put them out in a different, you know, you're someplace new and then that's good for desire. But like for people who are restricted now and they've got to be home uh, and maybe their kids are in the other room, like are there things they can do to sort of facilitate that, like create that?
0: Yeah, I think so. So one thing that often comes to mind for me is the go harkening back to the early days, like of making out on the couch or something like that, right? And so you can still do the role play of seeing the partner across the bar. You could pretend you're bringing your partner home for the first time, and you're kind of like tentative and like leaning in for that kiss, and it adds that layer of the unknown because you don't know when are they going to put their hand up your shirt or what's going to happen next. And so that's one little way to potentially add some novelty to the experience. Um, Other things can include reading erotic stories together, watching porn together, really anything that can bring you together in a way that is sexual and where the focus is something sexual as opposed to worrying about everything else that's going on right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like there's a piece of intentionality to it.
0: Also. Mm-hmm.
1: This is what we're going to do tonight. And we are specific. we're not doing that and we're not going to jump up and, you know, run and, you know, run into the office and answer an email, like we're here and we're doing this and we're focused mm-hmm. on each other. Yeah. Yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: yeah. Yeah. That's, um, again, I'm just, I'm struck by the consistencies between this and a lot of when I, when I, work with people around working from home and optimizing their life for that, like having good healthy boundaries, being intentional about what you're doing, um, maybe changing the environment, you know, when you're trying to do certain things, like now we're in work mode, you know, Mm. now we're in sex mode, (laughs) set up the place for that. So, yeah. Okay. So this is another thing that, that people are going to have to adapt to. Um, what about, or people who are dating. So, you know, people who are single and trying to meet people or people who are in couples, but they're open, they're not monogamous, they're dating and they're trying to figure out in, in the pandemic, like, how do you, how do you do this?
0: <laughs> it's I, I mean, <laughs>
1: You say it's impossible. I
0: said it feels impossible. Uh, so, yeah. because we have so many restrictions in terms, and I, in Canada, I, I think it's maybe a bit more strict than in the U.S. I don't know what's happening in various places, but I do think it's tricky. And so, people are switching to things like online dates, and then potentially advancing to maybe a socially distanced outdoor date, and. But then making that decision when it is appropriate or reasonable to come into physical contact with another person, I think it's tricky. And that itself is a source of stress. Uh, and in terms of non-monogamous communities, I know that a lot of people have been saying to just not go outside of your bubble right now, sort of have your closed bubble. And if you have partners outside of that bubble, the it's going to have to be distant because of the risks involved that are so much more heightened than they normally are.
1: Yeah. Ugh. That's, that's so, uh, it's grim, but, mm-hmm. but totally understandable, you know, I mean, it's just, it's like everything else now. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just this very real set of restrictions that, that we have to deal with in the interim, you know, and, until we get to the other side of this, but yeah, you think of all the, um, the ways that single people used to meet each other aside from online dating right but just being out someplace or going to a party and having shared acquaintances or shared friends and then running into people it's like none of that happens uh at all right now and and i've had had clients you know talking talking to me about this too like they're struggling with this trying trying to find a partner um at the moment yeah it's a tough one i wonder too about so it's kind of for me going back to grad school days right and thinking about when i would study conditioning um conditioning of behavior and learning and learning and behavior so we're learning a lot right now as people and i mean learning in the sense of like we're being classically conditioned we're conditioning mm-hmm. our behaviors and our emotional responses and what we're learning is that strangers are dangerous mm-hmm. um there are a lot of things, you know, disgust can be conditioned. And so we're developing disgust responses to things that were benign before, you know, it's like some stranger puts out their hand to shake your hand and it's like, whoa, what is this? You know, that's you. So what's going to happen? I mean, when we get to the other side of this, all these things we've learned, all this, um, I don't want to say paranoia because it—it it is warranted in a lot of ways. Do you expect that that's just going to dissipate or is this going to be an issue? You'd think
0: yeah i i think it's actually a fascinating experiment to observe how we're being conditioned and i would encourage people listening to think about the ways in which they're having these aversion reactions to things one of the things i've noticed with myself is on television now anytime people are meeting and they go to hug each other i'm like no yeah yeah no. Of this visceral reaction of like don't touch that person or even i was watching a scene the other day at a high school where there was kids everywhere and i was like no uh, so I, I think it's really interesting to pay attention to these aversive things or aversions that we're learning and in terms of getting rid of them later on i'm not sure you're the expert in conditioning how do we decondition these things
1: yeah Well, so, I mean, the standard model would be that when you have some kind of emotional reaction, when you've got anxiety or disgust, you know, those things will go away with repeated exposure to stimuli in the absence of, um, something bad happening, right? Like you just exposure therapy, you basically expose yourself out of it. And that happens with anxiety. It happens to disgust as well, but over more time, right. That's a slower one to go away, but it it will go away. Um, And, but I think that, you know, we know there's variability among people and people who are more have higher anxiety sensitivity, they're more just more sensitive to their feelings, you know, it can be maintained for longer, people who tend to be more avoidant in general, you know, and people who have beliefs that maintain those things. So though it's going to be slower to go away for them. So I think all which is to say, I think you're going to have some people who get right out there. And they put themselves back in the world. I mean, I even saw this during the summer when it was like it started to to, to decrease. There are some people who threw themselves back out there in the world. But I think the people who are more prone to be anxious, the people who are prone toward um, uh, obsessive compulsive tendencies, or people who are more prone to disgust, like you'll probably have some subset of people who are going to continue to struggle with this for a long time. Mm. People who have health related anxiety, medical anxiety, I think it's going to be a rough go. For those people even especially if there's a period where most of the world goes okay we're back to being normal and then Mm -hmm. there's some people sitting there like no it's you know we're not comfortable doing that Mm -hmm. i would expect to see them coming in uh, for treatment
0: yeah and i think about too how the messaging especially in some more progressive places around sexuality because most of covid or covid is most commonly transmitted through salivary droplets and aerosols and the warning has been against kissing. So for example, like the New York state guidelines, when they were saying, you know, avoiding kissing, you know, using glory holes, other ways. So saying like penetrative sex is okay, but maybe don't kiss another person. And I think, think that's really interesting because often most people's sexual encounters begin with kissing. And so if we're explicitly saying like kissing is the danger, I'm very curious to see how that, how people adapt back to being comfortable with kissing strangers in the future.
1: Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Like kissing. I mean, shaking hands and kissing, we know, are some of the main vectors for the spread yeah. of this disease. And they're sort of seen as, you know, the the lowest level uh for you know for people to express affection uh for one another. It's like that's at the very bottom of the ladder. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no wonder it's 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 so difficult for people to um to reckon with this right now. Mm-hmm. Um Yes yeah, so so this is i mean it's it's messing up everyone's lives right now in a variety of ways and it sounds like for people who are in couples the answer is largely around getting creative and being intentional and then for people who are single i mean it sounds like there's just people just trying to adapt to this sort of online dating world because that's really going to be your best bet right now so it's, yeah. it's so hard to meet people in public have 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 you heard anything or done any research into like how standards of behavior and online dating are changing? Like, do you know if people's, the way that people are communicating or I'm just thinking about like, so there's, there's scripts to it, you know, like, okay, you start to talk and then maybe you exchange some messages. And then traditionally it's like the next step is probably go to coffee or something like that, but that's not really on the table right now. So how are people even negotiating that
0: Mm -hmm. i would love to see more info about that i think there's been some media articles of people's experiences just anecdotally but yeah i just it would be very challenging to navigate an only online experience since so much of understanding if you have chemistry and that sort of thing is physical right like even being able to smell one another being able to like have some sort of physical contact even if it's just like putting a hand on an arm Those are such important cues for connection and chemistry that would be i think very challenging without those but at at the same time there's stories of people and this is throughout history of people who've connected long distance through letters or online chat groups for example who have formed like these really intense connected relationships on a more intellectual or emotional level before even meeting each other. And those can be success stories. Uh, I'm thinking of a friend of mine actually, who had that exact experience happen and now she's been with this person for 15 years uh, or even longer than that, I think. And their initial, they didn't meet for the first six months of their relationship.
1: That is super interesting. Yeah. Because that, that's something, you know, we wonder about a lot, like what are the things that make attraction? How much of it is intellectual, how much of it is chemical, right? There's been research. Um, you could speak to it better than than I could, but like the t-shirt research where people were told to smell t-shirts, right? Women were told to smell t-shirts of potential partners, and they were able to identify men who they they found more attractive, right? Just by smelling uh, their shirts, right? So you do wonder about uh how important that aspect is in this kind of environment where, yeah, you just can't do that. And I do, I am hearing these stories from people too, where they're meeting people online Tinder or something, and they're going months and months and really developing these relationships or may, I, it seems to me like there's more long distance ones that are developing that that way as well. Um, but I, it seems like there would be this moment of like, okay, well, we're finally going to meet each other. You know, <laughs> how is this actually going to go?
0: Right. Right. Exciting. Yeah. And yeah. terrifying. And then of course and there's terrifying. also stories that go the opposite way. You form this intense emotional bond with someone and then you meet them in person and the kiss is awkward or they don't smell right to your nose. And it doesn't mean they smell bad. It's just that sense of smell or our sense perception is really important for our attraction. And yeah, there's all of these physical cues that could go the wrong way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So many complications and we don't really no. I mean, it's from a research perspective, it seems like there's so many good questions in here. Mm-hmm. And like, it, it would be great to have a better understanding of these things. I'm wondering though, so this, you know, you're in Canada and you're doing this research. And as we talk about it, like I find these questions just really fascinating in their own right. You know, and it makes sense to me why someone would pursue this research agenda and why it's good for people to understand it. You know, do you ever get pushback from people? Or, you know, is that more of an American conservative thing for people to push back on? Like, why are we actually spending money trying on who cares about t-shirts and like what people smell like, you know?
0: Right. Uh, I, I definitely think there is a difference between Canada and the US. So as you know, I went to graduate school in the US. And my roommate in grad school was also Canadian. And we would often muse about how sexually repressed the Americans were or <laughs> just like, they just, there was just like less comfort with sexuality. Uh, but even my dad, like I got a grant, uh, to study monogamy and non-monogamy from the Canadian federal funding agency. And my dad was like, so what are my tax dollars paying for? <laughs> <It's> like not, <laughs> not, congratulations on your research grant. <laughs> uh, and so then I tried to explain it to him why it was important to do this sort of basic research to understand where people were coming from, um, because a, I think knowledge is good for knowledge sake, but very often the things that we can apply to make the world better or whatever, uh, relevant application, like down the line, I think almost all research that is useful to humanity, uh, starts off as basic research, looking at things like when you smell t-shirt sweat, what does, it, how do you respond to it?
1: so it's it's kind of like basic research is the building blocks Mm -hmm. and you don't really know how that's going to show up like how you don't necessarily know how we're going to benefit from doing that research but there's value in pursuing it on its own
0: yeah Um, even if you think about coronavirus research so there's been researchers around the world who have been studying these coronaviruses for decades and it was sort of an unimportant area of research because this was seen as not a big threat. And so they were studying it just to understand coronaviruses better. And then now, of course, they're the most important people and most important resources we have, these people who are studying this sort of niche area of uh, immunology, for example.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's a sense in which, and when you're doing this research, it's kind of in a way, so you're pursuing these questions you don't really know what the overall value of them is going to be. Like you can't necessarily always make make a tie to like, here's how someone's gonna make money off
0: it or it's mm-hmm. Whatever, mm-hmm.
1: which often it feels like is at the bottom of a lot of research, right? Like ultimately who is this gonna benefit? Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to be able to kind of press on and do that. Um, yeah, that's, um, oh, what was I gonna ask you? Sorry, I had uh, <laughs> Um I wanted to ask about, because I was, uh, I listened to your episode about porn. Mm. And so do we know, cause you said before that people were reporting, like that there was less sexual activity across the board. What do you think about porn though, in the time of COVID? Like, I remember hearing somewhere that, um, Pornhub was saying that their traffic was up and people were more likely to be using porn. And mm-hmm. have you seen any evidence for that?
0: Yeah, there's a couple studies in uh, out that I've seen. So one is that Kinsey study talked about increased porn usage. And then there's a few studies from Europe as well. And reports from Pornhub itself saying that porn usage has increased during the pandemic. So people are trapped at home, which is interesting, though, because people are reporting potentially less or the same amount of masturbation. But the porn usage seems to have gone dramatically through the roof which maybe uh, people are just watching it for sports or watching it yeah. longer. I don't know.
1: <laughs> they're watching it as connoisseurs. They're yeah. <laughs> writing reviews of it.
0: Yeah. Thinking um, of creating their own perhaps.
1: Yeah. Or maybe they're not being honest right? Uh, in their responses as well. There's that. So is that, you know, I, I know that there are people online who talk about avoiding porn. Uh, there was this thing recently, Seeing on Twitter, there are these guys talking about like some 30 day challenge where they weren't going to masturbate for 30 days. And there yes. seems to be this movement out there. It's like a subculture of guys who, who are doing that. Is that healthy? Is there a reason people should consider doing that? Or what is that about?
0: That's an excellent question. So, from what I gather, so the common thing that people start with is no FAP November. So, that's the 30 day challenge where you yes. go. Throughout yeah. November to and not masturbate. And it's very often men, specifically, who are doing this. And it's usually people who feel in some ways out of control of their life. So Interesting. either they are on, unhappy with their life, or, or it can be people who who really are experiencing compulsive masturbation, who are unable to stop, you know, spending all day at home masturbating. It's interfering with their life, it's interfering with their job that does happen as well. And so from those perspectives, people are looking for answers. Like, how do I improve my life? You come across these no fat forums, for example, that say, you know, if you withhold your energy and your vitality, you'll be a better human. Uh, And so that's often where it comes from. But to my knowledge, there's no evidence that masturbation or lack of masturbation helps there's just no research showing that it improves cognition or virility. So one of the claims is that it increases your testosterone. That's just not true. Uh, uh, I think I covered that in a, an episode shortly. or no, it, is, it was in the pornography episode of Do We Know Things that I looked into the research and found that actually, no, the testosterone isn't really affected if you don't masturbate. If anything, engaging in sexual behavior increases testosterone because it signals to your body that more testosterone is needed to create more sperm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and then the, the flip side of that the benefits are of masturbation are things like stress release uh, there's evidence that it can reduce the risk of prostate cancer down the line so the more you ejaculate throughout your life and so in general there if if an individual feels that their life is be- benefited by stopping masturbation awesome go for it <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, my concern with that though is that people then start flagellating themselves if they like screw up or relapse. Like I see a lot of language around relapsing for masturbation. And then of course you then enter the shame cycle of, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm a terrible person because I can't stop this thing. And, oh, look, I did it again. And, oh, I feel bad. So I'm going to masturbate to feel better. And like, it just gets into a vicious cycle.
1: It sounds to me a lot like eating, like compulsive Mm -hmm. eating behavior. Mm -hmm. There's a lot in there about self-control and this is a thing that I can really focus on mm-hmm. and feel like I'm in control of myself. But then there, there's also kind of like a moralistic, like a shame piece to it. Yeah. Like where if you slip up and then if you, you know, with binge eating, there's that cycle, right? Of binge mm-hmm. eating and feeling shame around that. And that contributes to more dysphoria, which makes binge eating more likely. And um, so a similar a similar kind of thing here. Um, how much of this do you think is around like just cultural shame and sort of moralism? around it, you know, is, is that what it's rooted in? Like, cause you know, there are religious strictures against porn and against masturbation, like are there higher, do you know if there are higher incidences of this kind of thing among people who are more religious?
0: Yeah, so people who are more religious are more likely to report that they're addicted to porn, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and feel more out of control with their porn usage. So that is correlated in a few studies, um, specifically thinking it's bad to do this thing, and then you do it more and then it makes you feel worse. it just sets you down that cycle. I also do think though, that there is the, the reinforcement piece, right? So you get this stimuli that is exciting. It feels good to masturbate. It feels good. feels good to have an orgasm and you want to seek that out again. So it's a twofold thing. It's something that people, most people can do with no problem at all. Um, but then for some people, they, they do get caught in that, um, you know, needing more of that.
1: Right, right. Well, it makes me wonder about like, what else is going on for those mm-hmm. people? You know, it's like, whenever you have a compulsive cycle, mm-hmm. uh, there's one piece of it, that's just like the re- the overly reinforced behavior. And then there's an avoided piece of like, you're doing the behavior to, av- to avoid some set of feelings,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Like maybe you're, you're so wrapped up in the whole masturbation thing, am I masturbating, am I not, am I going to keep track of this? You know, it's like, what are you not looking at right, while yeah. you're so focused on this behavior or you're going online, your are no fab November room, you know, chat rooms mm. or whatever, <laughs> like, yeah, that's what I would wonder about. Um, you said something about addicted to sex in there mm. too, is, is that, I don't know, I know it's kind of a potentially hot topic where do you come down on the sex addiction thing like is that a valid diagnostic category is it a real problem for people
0: well according to research and the diagnostic St- and statistical manual of medical and mental disorders oh, uh, that old thing yeah <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not qualified as a mental disorder um, and i think it's really complicated because of all the moralistic stuff around sex and I mean, there are behavioral addictions in the DSM, but sex seems different in that the people very often the people who are have sex addiction or porn addiction or whose therapists tell them that they have that or if they feel like they have that, it's really a a relative thing, so it's more based in their shame around the behavior, whereas someone else who might masturbate just as much or have sex just as much and enjoys it and feels fine about it and and it's not having a, a destructive effect on their life um. You know, they wouldn't be, they, the, from the outside, someone might say, oh, this person's addicted to sex, but the, the diagnosis of addiction seems to come with the moralistic components of it. Um, I don't know if I'm quite getting at what I'm trying to say.
1: <laughs> yeah. So there's, it, it's not so much about the actual behavior itself mm-hmm. or like the frequency that someone's having sex or that they're mm-hmm. masturbating or whatever. It's more about how they feel about it. Like, do they feel like what they're doing is wrong?
0: Mm-hmm. Or it feels out of control to them. Um, and from my perspective, I don't think addiction is a useful way to frame pornography use or sexuality. Um, I think for porn, looking at more through like a compulsive behavior lens or an impulsive behavior lens is probably more useful because then it's telling you like what is the source, of like what's triggering this. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. What are your thoughts on the sex addiction, porn addiction realm?
1: Yeah, I I would be inclined to agree with you there. I I do think looking at it as a compulsive behavior probably makes more sense Mm. than an addictive behavior. Addictions are definitely not my specialty. Mm. But when I think about addictions, I think more in terms of physiological dependence. Mm -hmm. And I think there can be an unfortunate tendency for people. I don't know if these are actual like academic psychologists. Or if this is more like the self-help kind of um, industry, you know, that comes up with this. But I, I feel like I see a lot of behaviors called addictions that really don't necessarily classify classifies addictions. And there's a way to kind of disavow responsibility when yeah. you blame, when you say, well, this is not me. This is an addiction. Even for substances, I don't really... Ah, I have a little bit of difficulty with this idea that like you're completely out of control of your behavior, like the kind of AA model of like your drinking is completely out of control and it kind of owns you, right? I do understand that as a psychological technique or something, seeing it in that way when you're in it, when you're a person who's in mm-hmm. AA, that can be helpful for a number of reasons, helping you like work through the shame and reckoning with things you've done, you know, seeing in that way can can be healthy but from the outside i don't know i'm very wary of that i kind of got off on a tangent there but like yeah i I feel like for the most part when it's behaviors that you can choose to do or choose not to do i think it makes sense to look at them as um being compulsive or impulsive and think about uh the conditioning behind them like Mm -hmm. how did you get into that place right like and then, so if I work with clients, uh, around anything that's compulsive or really any kind of behavior that's complicated, I would want to have a functional understanding of it. Like, okay, so how did this behavior come about? Um, is it consistent with your values in your ideal world? If you did have control over it, what role would it play in your life? How much would you be doing it? You know? So like if you, if you're sexually compulsive, okay, how much sex would you actually want to be having? under what conditions, with what people, and then we can start there and then we can work backwards to like figuring out how we would get you there. But it seems like people can, it can get very easily moralistic where, where someone can just, they'll get in trouble. They'll have an affair or something like this has happened so many times with media figures, right? They'll have an affair and then they'll just say, oh, well, sexual addiction or was sexually yeah. compulsive. And then they disavow responsibility for it. Yeah. Like that wasn't me. That was my addiction. Right. Yes. And I am not fully comfortable with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Great. then I think there's, you know, there are a lot of, um, there's kind of an industry around it too. Like there are a lot of clinicians who will, uh, reinforce that idea.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And people who have been very critical of it, like David Lee, for example, who's a clinician in I think New Mexico, but also wrote a book about um, sort of se- the myth of sex addiction. Um, he talks a lot about pay attention to who's making money from claims around addiction and their treatments. Um, and because a lot of the messaging is coming from people who are going to profit nightly off people believing that they have an addiction
1: yeah that makes sense that makes sense and when you have something like sex where it's so it's not even clear what's normal right mm-hmm. quote unquote normal or, or like what's normative i think it's very easy for people to believe that they have some kind of a, a problem with something right when mm-hmm. when maybe they don't you know maybe it's just, it's like maybe you're off uh, five degrees you know you don't need to do 180 it's like you just need to make some some adjustments there so that it fits into your life better. You feel good about it. Your partner feels good about it. And it's not this this crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh yeah, it's it's fascinating though to think about this. It's just like um it's so uh hard to talk about. Or let me say, I mean, it's not necessarily hard for for me to talk about anything mm-hmm. for you to talk about, because mm-hmm. this is like in our world, but I guess what I'm saying is I don't feel like there's enough frank discussion around this typically in the, in the media, you know, I I will hear things about sex addiction, but it's often someone coming on who's very much a proponent of that model. This is a real thing. And then a lot of times there can be like a moral panic component on top of it. Or porn too, is one of those things like it's the scourge of our children and, you know, in Utah, they're passing legislation to um, restrict porn
0: Yeah. And it's really all to avoid having conversations with our children about porn, which you should, anyone who is a parent should absolutely be doing because they're going to see it. And so talking to them about what it is and how, like putting, giving them a frame through which to watch it, like this is acting, (laughs) this is not real. You know, in real sex, it would look differently. There would be conversations, there would be consent, there would be condoms, (laughs) those kinds of things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is where, and you have a background as a sex educator, right? Mm -hmm. You were were saying earlier that um, that's how you got into doing sex research, like initially was Mm -hmm. was doing sex education. Um, Is that something that is still, are you still doing that as part of your work now, like uh, as a sex educator doing research around sex education?
0: Yeah. So I do research around sex ed, essentially looking at what is bad about sex ed or what, what people want in their sex ed. And I focused a lot on high school and middle school students, but actually this year I'm doing a study specifically looking at adults or sex educators who target adults. So these are people who have YouTube platforms or Instagram channels that are working with adults and talking to them about what they miss, like what they, what their needs are for sex education. Cause even as adults, we still need sex ed. Uh, I also has started a, a company called Sex Ed East, and so I do sex ed for grownups out here in Eastern Canada. And uh, I also teach about sexuality, and I see my human sexuality class at university very much as sex ed. Like, I one of my objectives for the class is to help these students have a better sex life.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so, what is that like? What kind of misconceptions or beliefs that do, do you commonly see people coming in with? Where do you start? I,
0: yeah i I would say a big one well the concerns that people have generally are am i normal so everyone worries that something they like or something they're into or the way they need to be touched to have their orgasms or whatever people are always worried about is this normal and my answer to that is always yes like no matter what it is and even if it's not normal even if you're the only one I, like everyone is different. There are different things that appeal to different people. And, and I think because we don't talk about it, there's so much fear about being abnormal, and, and having a fear of sharing that with partners, like what your actual desires are, what you actually need to connect with another person or have an orgasm. And so people, that's something that comes up a lot. Um, and then I also think just generally not being able to talk about sex or feeling uncomfortable talking about sex. Which I think factors into being able to get appropriate consent around sex, right? So if there's this assumption, it should be spontaneous, you should never talk about it, you should just see each other from across the room and, you know, your lips lock and then no words ever are spoken, um, which makes for often not very satisfying sex. (laughs) And so figuring out ways to talk more about like, what are you into? What am I into? What do we want to do together? all of those things can contribute to a more of a consent culture, but also like a better sex culture.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That the communication piece is so huge and it's, it's funny. It's like one of those things that is very simple and also hard for people to remember when they're in turmoil or not turmoil, but when they're, um, you know, they're unsure what to do. Like I know as, as a, as a therapist, so many times when I'm working with a client who has issues in their relationship or they're single and they're having issues with dating, it's like, the answer is like, just, just talk about it. You know, Mm -hmm. they're they're like, well, I don't, you know, I've got this thing and I don't know if my partner would be into it. And I don't really know how they would react, but I'm assuming that she's thinking this and I really think she's thinking that. And it's like, dude, you should just say that to her. Like what you just said <laughs> that to me, just say that to her. And I've been a therapy client before many times more than I could say where I'm like, I don't know this. I don't know that. I don't know that. And my therapist is just like, yeah, you should just share that. Like, just yeah. say that.
0: <laughs> yeah, But it's um, scary.
1: It is. It is. And then it's, it's reinforced by the culture. It's like, who is it said Um, the plot of every romantic comedy could just be resolved if the Two characters would just talk to one another. Here's how I'm feeling. Oh, me too. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Movie over.
0: <laughs> it's so true.
1: Yeah. So, so a lot of what you're doing is, I guess, just kind of surfacing that conversation, giving an mm-hmm. opportunity for people to have these conversations, hear other people say it. And it sounds like there's a big shame component, too, because it's Absolutely. it's ultimately shame that's like keeping yeah. people talking
0: about this and there's shame of the individual who who is afraid to share but also partners reactions often are not great because they have right so yeah Yeah. telling someone okay just have that conversation but they also need to be prepared that their partner might be like you're disgusting and a monster right and yeah because that does happen because people are so afraid of sex that they like there's automatically a defensive reaction often
1: Yeah, that's true. That, that is unfortunately true. So it's like half of it is, is being more honest, being more open, being more direct. And then part of it too, is knowing that you're in a world filled with people who are not necessarily going to be that open and honest and direct and everybody has their own baggage. Mm -hmm. And when you share things like it is potentially going to be triggering your partner. And I, I think especially like, it seems to me as people get older, and have more experiences or expose more things, do more work on themselves, you know, get more comfortable. It just becomes easier. I mean, I know for my life getting older, this all of this gets easier to talk about, I feel like, compared to someone in college. I mean, working with college kids must be really rewarding just to see <laughs> the the discomfort that people have and to know that like you're really making a difference with them, right? Some of them may never have had any conversations,
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I agree that getting older and like working on yourself and having more perspective is useful, but I also think it can be extra scary for couples who've been together for a long time. So say you are childhood sweethearts, you've been together 20 years and you have something that you've been fantasizing about and it it can be feel extra risky to bring that up, you know, in your forties when you've been having the same sex for 20 years with a partner, for example.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But that's another one of those where it could go two ways because there are couples where I'm sure they bring something up and they're like, Oh my God, really. But then I, I also know couples where after 20 years, they brought something up and it was like, really?
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then it, you know, off to yeah. the races. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So gen- but generally speaking, so communication about these things is good. You're when you're working as a sex educator, I guess you're, you're, you're giving people permission. To talk about these things, you're giving a, a vocabulary, correcting mm-hmm. some misconceptions uh, that people probably have, and uh, al- allowing them to to take ownership mm-hmm. of their, their sex lives, their dating lives.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think one big thing that I always that I didn't even realize fully until I started doing the podcast and started doing more like intensive sex ed again was that the importance of the clitoris that people are not aware. <laughs> <laughs> Clitoris need direct stimulation uh, for orgasms to happen most often. Um, it's I, National
1: I Clitoris Awareness Day, actually.
0: That's, it's uh... a, we're just declaring <laughs> why, this today. Why not? Why not? <laughs> you never know.
1: But uh so, you, so you were saying that. <laughs> so that's something that people are not aware of.
0: Yeah, because we think that sex is heterosexual sex and heterosexual sex is putting penises in vaginas and orgasms should magically happen for everyone but it doesn't actually work that way and that um if the clitoris is not being appropriately stimulated then it, the clitoris haver is not going to have an orgasm <laughs> and i think that's a a myth that i can't believe still persists
1: so you mean among like uh like students or I no mean, just- <laughs> People I was, just aren't aware of it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay.
0: I follow this one therapist, Vanessa Marin, um, and she has a really great online platform. And she did a whole thing about it a month or two ago that she did a survey of her like 10,000 people on her list. And one of the most people were shocked to find out that you're supposed to stimulate clitoris to have orgasms.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. Also, there's some low hanging fruit out there. There's, yes. there's some easy wins for people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Is is this um again going back to the cultural piece and you're doing this work in Canada? I just keep like, I just keep wondering, is there the same level of receptivity to this in the in the US? I mean, like, would we have, do you know, is there any government funded work like this happening in the US where they're talking about clitorises and, you know, sexual pleasure? And I mean, it seems like it would be off the table.
0: Yeah, I think in the US it wouldn't be possible at a, like a high level funding. But I imagine there's sort of people doing this work, maybe outside of the school system. But but there's also this huge growing market of people who are sex educators for people who are adults, because they're not getting it as teens. And so then they're seeking it out as adults. So there's tons of YouTube channels and Instagram things and workshops. And I, I think there's nothing wrong with continuing to learn more about sex. But it's sad that. You know, there's studies that show that um, girls are graduating high school and their sex ed are going into sexual activity and having no idea that sex is supposed to feel good because it's never once mentioned in their sex ed. And of course, there's talk about masturbation that always tends to focus around boys. There's jokes around masturbation, always tends to focus around boys. So girls are never talked to about masturbation or pleasure. And research uh, by Debbie Herbenik has shown that young women report the highest levels of sexual pain. Um, and when other studies have uh, interviewed these women, they didn't know that sex was supposed to feel good and not be painful.
1: That is amazing. Mm-hmm. Wow. So even though with all the talk about, you know, you hear people talk about the oversexualized culture
0: mm-hmm. that we
1: live in and how porn is so widely available, uh, even with all of that. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it makes sense that that's not necessarily oriented toward pleasure or, or women's pleasure, right? Like it has a particular spin on it or a particular, particular perspective. It's there Mm -hmm. for a certain reason, which is not to educate, Mm -hmm. certainly not to educate young people. So
0: yeah. Mm -hmm. And Um, people are using it as education. And again, there's very little focus on the pleasure of the person with the clitoris. It's very much about sticking penises and things.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, Learning Taekwondo from like a Jean Claude Van Damme movie, right? Sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is not reality. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned before uh, your podcast, mm-hmm. so maybe what did what did talk a little bit about your podcast and where people can find it?
0: Sure. So as you said at the beginning, um, it's a podcast that examines the things we think we know about sex. And part of the reason I started it is because there were things that I was repeating about sex, like, for example, the clitoris has 8000 nerve endings. And I would say that and I realized I hadn't actually looked in to see if these things were true. And so, which, by the way, we actually have no idea how many nerve endings are in a human clitoris. Um, but I started wanting to dig into the research about things that we think we know about sex and these things that get said over and over and over again and uh, mm-hmm. Most of my episodes do that. They explore something about sex that may or may not actually be true. And so it's called Do We Know Things and you can download it wherever you find your podcasts normally. It's available on all the platforms. And also my website, dowe know things.com.
1: I love that. You do the research so we don't have to.
0: Exactly.
1: <laughs> no, that's really great. I mean, especially around sex where there is so much misconception. It seems like so easy for um Urban legends
0: yeah, <laughs> yes,
1: information to to proliferate, so yeah yeah, and and I've listened to a bunch of your episodes, yeah, and they're they're super interesting, um and I love that you do that. I love that you actually dive into the to the evidence base. um it gets me thinking about research in general, to even outside of sex, like how it's so easy for things to become sort of um the what do you call it? the common wisdom, the conventional wisdom, you know, they're like, well, what do we actually know that? What do we actually know?
0: Yeah, it's so true. And I've been surprised at how little, like things that I thought I knew, like, for example, that peeing after sex can help prevent urinary tract infections. Like that's something I've been told since I was a teenager by doctors, by friends, and there's actually no evidence to support that at all. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) Huh. So I have an episode called to pee or not to pee. And it goes through the research on it.
1: (laughs) Nice. Did you find anything? Is there anything that works?
0: Um, Well, it's caused by E. coli bacteria. So usually like poop bacteria. (laughs) Um, And so the ideal thing would be for if someone is prone to uh, UTIs, for example, is both people clean or however many people are involved, um, cleansing themselves before. So making sure there's no bacteria on your body before having sex uh, is the ideal way to prevent one
1: yeah so purell or that yeah yeah something good (laughs) yes we found another use for hand sanitizer this year
0: wow i feel like putting hand sanitizer on your genitals might not be advised yeah it's
1: probably not the best yeah okay (laughs) as a sex educator um (laughs) well cool well well this has uh been great i feel like we've covered a lot of ground today Mm -hmm. um we started out with covid um we ended up on, on P and Purell, so, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know you're in the middle of finals right now and are, are super busy. Um, so, yeah, I, I really do appreciate it. And uh, I'm interested to see, too, the, the response we get to this because it is kind of different from other episodes that we've done. And I know people are usually really excited about sex and, and interested as you know. So um, yeah, I'll let you know how that goes and what kind of response we get here.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me. This is very fun.
1: Yeah, it was. All right. Thanks a lot.
0: Thanks for listening to the Succeed Under Stress podcast. Visit us at succeedunderstress.com and be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes.